Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Will Clark, Senior Communications Studies major and videographer at Gustavus, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me, your host, Greg Castor. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. Interestingly, aunque yo me llevara el premio por ser la gringa más mexicana, although I took the award for being the most Mexican gringa, I never liked being introduced by my friends in Portland as my friend from Mexico. It used to piss me off so much. I guess you could say that before I negotiated my identities, I was pretty much la India Maria, ni de aquí ni de allá, neither from here nor from there. Maybe I still feel that way. So wrote my colleague, Professor Angelique Dwyer of the Modern Languages, Literatures, and Cultures Department at Gustavus in a creative nonfiction piece titled Gringos Mexicanos, which she published in the Journal of Multidisciplinary International Studies in 2019. As you will hear, Angelique's observation reflects not only her scholarly interests in U.S.-Mexico intercultural studies and Chicana-Latina cultural production, performance art, and film, but also her personal story. Angelique has been teaching at Gustavus since 2010, having earned her PhD in Spanish at the University of Iowa with a focus on 20th century Latin American literature. She has creatively made community-based learning an important component of her teaching, for which she won the President's Civic Engagement Steward Award from the Minnesota Campus Compact in 2016. In addition, she has directed the exciting Latin American, Latinx, and Caribbean Studies program at Gustavus, which she is again directing, and authored a wide variety of publications, including book chapters and works of creative nonfiction. For all these reasons and more, including my own wonderful experience as an undergraduate in Mexico in the early 1970s, I've been looking forward to speaking with her for this podcast. Angelique, welcome. I'm delighted you could join me. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that wonderful introduction. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, I should know, we're, we're, we first met when you were uh, interviewing on campus, and I was so involved in speaking with you that I almost made you late for your uh, teaching demo. Well, I think I did make you late, but you pulled it off as you said you were, you were ready. So <laughs> <laughs> um, this, is, this is more relaxed for, for both of us, I think. Um, let's start with your journey, because I, I think I, I find that very interesting. I remember speaking with you about that when we first met, and I think uh, listeners will find it quite interesting. Where did you grow up and how did you find your way to what you're currently doing? Yeah, I uh, was born in Portland, Oregon. My parents are from the Midwest and we lived there until about uh, when I was six years old. And then uh, for various different reasons, uh, personal and family wise, uh, my family decided to take a hiatus for about a year uh, down to Mexico. And, you know, this was, of course, not something common. I mean, not something commonly done uh, by most families who have no ties to anywhere else but to the U.S. And uh, we, at the time there in Portland, I should say that, um, you know, Portland is a very multicultural city. And back then, most of our surrounding families, the kids that we would play with, uh, at school and after school were from different places of origin, uh, Japan, Hawaii, Pakistan, the Philippines, India. And it was very multicultural. So some of my friends or sorry, my parents' friends actually uh, were the ones who posed the idea on my parents. And they said, well, you know, if you're going to take some time off, uh, you know, why not go somewhere like Mexico that's right next door that, you know, is financially viable, but more importantly, your kids can study another language, you can study another language, and you can have the, that cultural experience out of it. And that's sort of how it happened. Um, we went, without knowing any Spanish whatsoever, uh, down to central Mexico, and uh, our parents put my brother and I in uh, bilingual school our first year in Guadalajara, and I remember it was part of the day was in English and then part of the day was in Spanish. And, uh, you know, the part in English, I was in kindergarten and I was excelling, of course. Right. But the part in Spanish, uh, you know, it was I was just sitting there and nothing. I mean, I, I was not understanding a word that was being said to the point that uh, I had 
been assigned to do a little drawing in my classroom. And I looked over and I saw my, my classmates drawing and I just, I saw, oh, there's some letters there at the top. I copied word, you know, letter for letter, word for word, what it said at the top. And the teacher just walked over to me and said, you know, you're not, you know, Vanessa Lopez Perez or whatever, <laughs> you know, so I had copied the other little girl's name without even knowing that that's what I had done. <laughs> um, so it was completely, you know, no Spanish whatsoever. And it was so rapid that, you know, we learned so rapidly, my brother and I, my brother had started fourth grade, I had started kindergarten, like I said, you know, by th within three to four months, we were already interpreting for my parents, arranging playdates. And one thing led to another that uh, about six months into it, we moved into a, a different location that was closer to school because, you know, it's really funny how things happen. We first moved to uh, a part of the, the city that's called Plaquepaque, that's uh, these gorgeous colonial streets, but it was 45 minutes away from the this bilingual school that we had been enrolled in. And so uh, it was kind of like a hacienda style home, just completely from the movies. And, you know, after six months of driving back and, forth, back and forth in traffic, my parents, you know, realized, OK, we need to go to a smaller apartment in the area. So we moved. And then again, after the year was completed, um, my parents just saw how much of an effect it had on us. You know, speaking Spanish, being uh, embraced into the culture so quickly and so easily. And uh, with some friends that we had there from Guadalajara, they took us out on the weekends as they normally do. You know, uh, it's common for families to go down to different smaller uh, towns, you know, to spend the day either uh, enjoying the views or the landscapes, the rural areas. And so uh, we drove out to Lake Chapala and drove around the lake, enjoyed, you know, a lovely day. And my parents saw a piece of property there and they inquired on the cost of it and they ended up purchasing it, um, which is also a very interesting tale because it was in the middle of nowhere with the highest weeds you can imagine all around it. And the person who had lived in it, it was an abandoned home on a gorgeous piece of property in front of the lake but just an abandoned home and the previous owner had passed away in it 15 years ago. So, you know, people in the area uh, were all, all saying, you know, telling ghost tales and nobody, they had said that he had buried his, you know, riches in the land. So nobody would dare go there because of the ghost tales. Um, of course, my parents, you know, took it upon themselves to, to sort of initiate this, this adventure. So it was a wonderful upbringing. Um, I don't think they intended to live there, you know, for 35 years. Wow. Uh, they're still there today. Um, I think in their minds it was, oh, let's do one more year. Oh, let's do two, three more years. Oh, this is, you know, let's, let's do maybe five more years. And one thing led to the next. And, you know, it was completely 100% an adventure. Um, you know, we had avocado trees and we had wayaba trees or guava trees and uh, strawberries. And I mean, just lemons, whatever limes, whatever you could, you wanted. We had it there, mango trees. We had horses down, you know, by the lake. And uh, it was a very free, uh, happy upbringing. Um, and we lived in between two towns. And so, you know, when we wanted activity, we would go into the into the pueblos, into the, the towns and we would go to the dances on Saturdays. And we would you know, my mom would have us selling cupcakes and uh, we'd go to church there, you know, and. Uh, it, so it's kind of in, in some ways it's a it's a normal kind of, you know, childhood. You're selling cupcakes, but it's it's very unusual in in other ways by by, you know, the typical U.S. standard, right? You grew up in, you said you, you, you were born in Portland, is that I right? I was born but, in Portland, Oregon. But your, parents, uh -huh. your parents are from the, where were they from in the Midwest? So my dad is from Chicago. Uh, oh, my hometown. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my mom is from St. Louis, Missouri. So, you know, I had very much a Midwestern upbringing, you know, both of them Catholic. Uh, my dad had studied to become a priest, uh, you know, back in the 60s, right? So he was very much in favor, still is, you know, uh, of service and going out into the communities uh, and working with the people. Change, you know, has to happen from within, from with the people, you know. And so long story short, he was kicked out because he was a rebel, you know, and uh, the church at that time was not in favor of him doing that. And so after he was kicked out when he was 27, he met my mom. Uh, he went back to school and they met uh, at Southern Illinois University. Huh. And was he was he doing sort of 
ministerial work in Mexico or and what was your mom doing too? No. So my parents, gosh, you know, I wish, I wish I could say that that was the case because I think it would make a great story, but no, you know, um, he was, he, he is someone, my dad, especially is someone who has constantly reinvented himself. Um, he's very passionate, uh, at one time even has been just a workaholic. I mean, whatever he's passionate about, he, he moves forward and goes with it. And my mom is a very hardworking woman as well. And so, uh, my dad has mainly had had a career in the restaurant business Hmm. and was extremely successful. Um, you know, in the Bay Area, in Portland, in Seattle, all along the Pacific Northwest, in the restaurant business, in several several different restaurants. Um, he started in cafeterias and in colleges and universities, and then from there went to larger restaurants, and then started developing some health issues related to that, um, how demanding the work was. Uh, my mom uh, is an English teacher, and I mean, thanks to her, we maintained our English, and we can actually read and write in English because, you know, it was such a switch coming from an English speaking world and then going to a Spanish speaking world. And I should mention when we moved to Lake Chapala and purchased that piece of property, we lived, I went from first grade all the way up to college in 100% Spanish. Um, So that Spanish has always been an academic language for me. Um, English has been more the language of my home. And then I did actually study abroad in England uh, for that very reason, because my parents said, you know, you got to keep your English, make sure that you go somewhere. If you want to study abroad, you know, I went, of course, I wanted to go uh, to Argentina and I had romantic ideas of I'm going to do this, you know, and they kept saying, no, you know, you need to go somewhere where you can make sure that your English, you know, you owe this to yourself, to your culture, to your heritage. It's so interesting. I'm thinking, first of all, I'm thinking, uh, I studied in Mexico as a, as I guess I was a junior in college and just fell in love with it with a then uh, girlfriend who was fluent in Spanish, uh, came from Northern Illinois University to go to the University of the Americas, which was in Cholula, uh-huh. oh, wow. not far from Puebla. And I just, just loved it. But we never, she had been to Guadalajara. I'd never, we never made it there, but we did get to Guanajuato, which I remember was just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just loved it. But it sounds, uh, and I love Mexico and still do and want to, want to get back. Haven't been back in a long time, but so you went straight through to college, but in college you were, you were uh, a communication studies major, right? Yes. What led you to that? And how did you make the switch from there to Spanish and and 20th century Latin American literature? You know, very interesting. Um, I, you know, I went K through 12. uh, We were in a very rural area and there weren't really many opportunities. Schools were underfunded. And I always had this feeling of, you know, what else can I do? I mean, I remember I kept going into my teacher's classrooms and in their offices and saying, you know, what else can I do? Um, you know, I, I, I actually, I, I remember going up to a psychology teacher and saying, uh, how can I be more? You know, that, those were my words verbatim, right? I mean, so I think I was, I was desperately searching for mentors. Um, and uh, I... I it, the education I got, I think everyone meant well, but it was really under, it was under the level. I, I was not academically where I needed to be. Um, and to the point that even when I took my SAT exams to get into college, uh, they're not called SATs there, but you know, the, the entrance exams, I actually was, I mean, I got something like a D minus. I mean, I barely passed. And I was so full of passion and desire and I wanted to continue learning. And that's always been a a continued thing for me. I mean, if I could continue being a student, I I think that's why I'm a professor, right? Because I want to continue learning. I want to continue always putting on, putting myself uh, in a position where I can just drench myself in, in new information and new ideas and thinking about things in different ways. Um, but I almost didn't pass that at that exam. And I remember, you know, having to, to go in and talk to the dean of students and, and talk to the administration and saying, you know, uh, what can we do about this? And, and, you know, will you still accept my daughter, basically, was what my parents were saying. And, and they said, you know, we're going to we're going to give her a semester on probation. And that first year. Uh, I excelled tremendously. And I think it's because I found, you know, I was at a big city now, a large city. And your question was, why did I choose communications? You know, I wasn't really sure because I was coming from a small area and I wasn't 100% sure on what I wanted. Um, I had very, very different ideas. I said, I think I want to do law, psychology, um, uh, you know, or, or English. Of course, I had always 
loved writing. Uh, always. I mean, from when I was like six and seven years old, I remember actually stapling pieces of paper together with stickers and drawings and handing it to my parents' friends and saying, here's a copy of my new book, (laughs) you know, and everybody would just laugh hysterically. And at the time they would ask me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always said, I want to be a librarian. Uh And I think, you know, I think it's because I just have always loved books. You know, I love the smell of books. I love going to the library. I love getting new books out you know, um, just, just, you know, flipping through them, which is something that I think the, the whole ebook and e-reading idea, you know, I, I, I do miss the, the tangible aspect of it. Um, but, uh, a friend of mine actually had studied communications, um, because in, in Mexico, how things work actually in the Spanish speaking world in general, except for Puerto Rico, I believe, um, you have to know what you're studying before you even apply. You, you can't even apply to the college or the institution without declaring what your major is going to be ahead of time. There is no GEP program. You know, it's, it's, this is what I want to be. This is what I want to study. And then all the, all four years are geared toward that field. Um, so I had these very vague ideas, but a friend of mine had actually done a semester or two of comm studies And she had shared with me, oh my gosh, look at the brochure. I'm having a blast. It's so much fun. And I had seen, you know, images of, oh, you can take photography, you can take audio, you can take video, uh, journalism. And uh, that's what really got me about it was how varied it was. Um, And I always knew I loved writing, but there wasn't really a program you know, that was similar to that at the institutions that I was looking at, at being enrolled in. And, uh, my parents did sit me down at one point and said, you know, do you want to go to the States? Uh, do you want to go to study? Actually, I was looking at Puget Sound. Um, Hmm. and, uh, you know, and to study English, in fact. And so with my brother, you know, he, he did about a year or so, um, at a, uh, college there in in Laredo and he decided to just head back home. So it didn't really go very well for him. So I said, you know, I don't know if I want to go to the States. It just felt like I wasn't ready. It felt like I just, uh, you know, I was too young, almost too, um, insecure about coming up to the States alone when all my family, all my upbringing, you know, uh, was there in Mexico. So, I mean, I do have relatives here in the States, but, uh, we were just raised in a way that was so, so centered around Mexico that it seemed very weird for me to leave at that point. So I decided to stay. And and I'm very happy that I did because uh, that, that institution, um, ITESO in Guadalajara, uh, which is a, a Jesuit uh, private college, very similar to Gustavus, I think in the sense that though it's not, uh, you know, liberal arts per se, it's, it has that Jesuit philosophy, which is very, very free and open and exploratory. Yeah. I mean, the Jesuits, I have to say, I was, I I guess I was, I was baptized in the Greek Orthodox church. My dad was Greek American and raised Episcopal, but the, 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 and attended public schools in the burbs of Chicago, but my goodness, the Jesuits certainly Mm -hmm. provide a fine education. Um, So many people I know and admire who, who write about that. So you found your way from there. I want to come, I want to come back to your, your identity in a second, but from there you found your way to the university of Iowa. Mm -hmm. And at that point you were, you were going specifically to do graduate study in, in Spanish. Um, so, so, when I graduated uh, from ITESO in comm studies, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, at that point, I was very, I was still writing. In fact, my four years in comm studies, everything that I did, if I, if I had to say what I specialized in that entire time was script writing. I very much enjoyed writing scripts uh, for television, actually. And that's where I thought my future was going to head because um uh, in your fourth year, you have to fulfill, it, it's a requisite in order to graduate, um, you have to fulfill 500 hours of what they call servicio social, um, which is really kind of like an unpaid internship. And I was uh, fortunate to work at an educational television company for children, uh, Channel 8, actually, at the time. And I would uh, write with a team of script writers, uh, I would write um, uh the scripts for that TV show. And I had a blast and I loved it. And so I knew I wanted to do something with writing and I knew I wanted to continue studying. Um, then when I graduated, uh, the way it works is you can either complete a senior thesis or you can take an exam and that 
warrants you your diploma. Many people don't have, you know, the privilege of doing that. They they go into the workforce right away or dedicate themselves to something else and they don't actually need the diploma. Um, but, you know, those who, who actually want it and have the opportunity to do it, you know, are able to dedicate themselves to writing their senior thesis. For some people in Mexico, that can take 15 years. It can take five years, 10 years, because financially, you know, it, it's not, uh, easy, right, to do that. Um, I was, like I say, privileged enough that I was able to do that for one entire year. I dedicated myself to writing, you know, a senior thesis, which um, was something like 120 pages, and and it was wonderful as a, an, an undergraduate student because it really pushed me. Um, in fact, I'll tell you something interesting about that process. Um, I, even though I was studying comp studies and I, ha I had a love for English and for literature. I decided to work with folk tales and that got me into literature as a whole. And that's when I realized that's, that's what I want to pursue. Um, but at the time I had found a key book, um, by a professor at the university of Minnesota, uh, Alex Dundee's, um, or sorry, Alan Dundee's. Um, and you know, I didn't even, I didn't know Minnesota had no idea. And I took the liberty, right, at the time, a 21-year-old, 22, whatever I was at the time, I, I just said, why don't I email him? Because I have a couple questions about his book. And wouldn't you know, this wonderful professor from the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, replied in full detail at mul on multiple occasions. And that informed uh, that thesis. And I had the pleasure of uh, actually meeting him at the University of Minnesota when I taught there two years ago as an adjunct professor. Um, and so it's just crazy how life, you know, circles, right? In the sort of serendipitous moments uh, like that. And uh, and now here I am, right? Associate professor, um, also working with literature and, and folk tales and stories and life stories, you know, telling my own stories through creative nonfiction. Um, so I, I love that. I mean, I love the all the, I love all those components of of your journey. <clears throat> um, and I agree, it's fun. It's it's interesting and sometimes funny, and it's always not always, but so often unexpected, the twists and turns. Mm -hmm. And so what if he hadn't responded? Um, exactly, you know, or, exactly. I mean, you just don't know. But so, so you, but you ultimately so, went to Iowa, right? Yeah. So the university of Iowa. So I applied, I, you know, I applied, I was very, very naive, um, very passionate, very motivated, but very naive. And, um, when I was in high school, I had a mentor, uh, who was a senior woman retired, uh, from, uh, the university of Iowa, uh, theater teacher. And so she had said to me, you know, gosh, uh, she, she was actually a mentor of mine. I would show her my poetry. I would go up there, have iced tea with her, show her my poetry, and she'd give me some guidance and we'd read together, you know, and she really helped me with my English skills and um, academically speaking and creatively speaking. And so she said, gosh, Angelique, you should really apply to the University of Iowa. And, you know, I looked into it and um, but I think one of the things that's really benefited me in my own career is really coming into things with a certain naivete. And I say that only because had I known that that was one of the top institutions in creative writing at the time, I never would have applied. I would have yeah. been so demoralized, you know, so intimidated. I never would have even applied. But yet I did. My work was nowhere near right where it needed to be. But I applied and coming from Mexico, you know, with with letters of recommendation writ written in Spanish, yet poorly translated, you know, not because I, you know, I would have loved to have translated, you know, written them myself, but it was not that was not able to do that. So I had to pay someone who didn't quite, you know, have the level of ability to do it. Anyway, long story short, they did not accept me into the program. However, they did accept me into the University of Iowa graduate program. So what that did was that enabled me to take graduate level courses in multiple fields. So I actually was able to take one poetry course at an undergraduate level and then another at a graduate level. Um, and that got me to realize that, gosh, you know what? I don't think I want to do this anymore. And it really got me to work on my craft. I mean, every week I was turning in multiple poems for different classes. But then what was I doing to pay my rent? I was teaching Spanish. Hmm. And so that, that's what really, um, that's where I found a sense of home. You know, I, I, I got to Iowa and back, you know, back in the day, right. This was what <laughs> 15, 20, I guess this was 20 years ago. Um, it, which isn't really that long ago, but, um, you know, back at that time, I don't really remember anyone uh, in in the poetry program there talking about Spanglish or talking about using different languages in their work. It, it was very, you know, Anglo-centered. 
um, uh, English centered and, and it, it was, it wasn't a place where I felt a sense of identity or a calling. Whereas when I had applied for the Spanish teaching program, um, again, very naively, I did not know who I was interviewing with one of the top, you know, professors in, in the field, um, of Spanish, of, of teaching Spanish as a second language. Um, and you know, she became my mentor and she is the reason why I'm here today because she formed me. She made me into one of the best teaching assistants I could have been. It was a wonderful, the university of Iowa at that time, um, had a, a, a troop of 50 TAs, you know, teaching Spanish and working together, learning, um, uh, we had very strong supervisors. We had opportunities to work in the textbook industry and, and write, you know, um, uh, collaboratively and independently, um, do a lot of, uh, freelance work as well. So that, that solid mentoring led me to see, oh my goodness, you know, I could do something with this. And it's funny because I remember that first year that mentor, you know, brought me into her office and she said, Angelique, you know, I see you're struggling here, right? You applied to the poetry program. You didn't get in. You don't really feel a sense of identity. I actually went over to the comp studies department and I said, you know, um, I interviewed and I, it just didn't flow. You know, it, it was a very, um, it was either theory, it was theoretical or practical. And if it was practical, you had to have a portfolio. Well, I didn't, if it was theoretical, you had to have a strong knowledge. Well, this was somebody, I mean, I had only had six or six months uh, of English instruction abroad. The rest of my entire training was all in Spanish. So I didn't really feel like I had the level where I could produce essays, which that was more of, I think, a personal thing of my own, right? Um, I think I easily would have grown into it, but at the time that was intimidating to me. And I also interviewed in the English department and in the comp studies, or sorry, comp lit department. Um, and same thing, I didn't really feel a sense of, you know, them saying to me, hey, you know, you got this and, and we'll work with you. And, and, you know, don't worry, we have this program that can support you. It, it all felt very odd. And, you know, she said to me, this mentor, she said, you know, Angelique, if you apply, we will accept you. We're looking for students like you. And believe it or not, I said to this woman to whom I, you know, definitely owe a lot in my career. I said to her very naively, if I had wanted to quote, if I had wanted to have studied Spanish, as a, at a master's degree level, I would have stayed in Mexico. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my gosh, how embarrassing, you know, but, um, but uh, yeah, so we can follow up on that one later. But what, what ultimately led me to the program and what convinced me was not only that I feel a sense of home there linguistically and culturally, but um, several things. First, you know, I could take film. Oh my goodness. I love film. Oh, I could right. take cultural studies. I could take performance studies, something that I had only touched upon briefly in my senior year of, of undergrad, you know, and what did that mean? So that's what really drew me in and, oh, I can also take lit and theater and poetry. And my professors are from all these different countries. It's not just, you know, Mexican professors with the occasional, you know, I had a Cuban professor at, in Mexico and I had a Colombian professor in Mexico. No, here in the U.S. you have such a wide variety of professors from different country, countries and cultures and expertise. That's just, a, again, a wonderful story with, with those contingencies. Um, and you've said a couple of things that I think are worth uh, emphasizing here to, to, to listeners, especially to, to young people thinking about college and worrying about majors and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. And one is the, the importance of of, of naivete, right? Mm -hmm. Of not having everything figured out and of how mm -hmm. that naivete can, can, uh, you know, work to your, to one's advantage as mm -hmm. it did in, in your case, it can leave you open to, to things. 100%. Um, uh, in fact, yeah. I, I can tell you one other thing, uh, related to that, that I think will be impactful for, for student listeners, especially, um, you know, I had started as a teaching assistant and of course I interviewed and I got the position and I went through a week of training surrounded by, I think it was something like 25 or something new students who were being, uh, you know, inducted into this program. Um, and, you know, again, very naively, I had understood quote unquote teaching assistant. Right. And so I'm thinking, well, I'm going to be assisting, right. Uh, a professor in this. And uh, I am someone who uh, am definitely 100% a leader in the sense that I know what I want, 
but I, I was always very shy in, in my undergrad and in, in, you know, growing up always, always very shy in academic settings. Um, you know, with my friends and socially, no, within the arts, I always loved dancing, loved performing, but when it came to speaking and being in an academic setting, uh, I was always very, very shy. And I remember my senior year of undergrad, I really went through a lot because I would purposefully choose positions that were not positions of leadership, even though I had the idea, you know, originally, I wouldn't want to direct it, right? I wouldn't want to direct it if it was a TV show or a video. I would, I would be the assistant to the director, you know, and um, by accident, I had a, a situation in my television class where I had to direct because I had been the assistant director and the guy who was directing had missed. And I couldn't sleep that night. I was so nervous because of how shy I was and how I think, you know, what's what's the expression, that famous quote that says we're afraid of our own our own light, our own power. Own shadow. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so, um, you know, I excelled tremendously when I actually took that opportunity. So in this situation, uh, here I am, I interviewed for this position. I got the job. I'm going through the week, uh, of preparations. And the day before we're about to begin class, fall classes are starting at the university of Iowa. And I have, you know, my students, it's the day before, I tell my colleagues, my friends around me, oh, you know, so I wonder when we're going to meet these professors and I hope they're nice, right? And easy <laughs> to work with. The entire table breaks out in laughter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my more experienced friends who had already actually completed an, uh, uh, an undergraduate degree in education, in fact, from Peru, looks over at me and says, uh, you're the teacher. You're <laughs> the one, you know, what have you been doing this entire week? I almost had a panic attack right then and there. I was sick to my stomach the entire night and the entire, the entire rest of the semester. But the first day I walked into that classroom, I knew that was my vocation because, you know, something, you, you, something that makes you physically ill, you know, and yet so excited afterwards, it just shows that that's something that you're passionate about. So I always say my vocation found me. I didn't find my vocation. My vocation found me. Yeah, you were open to it too because of your naivety. And the other thing you said that I, I mean, that, that that's so important is that that issue of comfort of knowing this is me or this is this is where I feel mm -hmm. I can be me. I think that's also important for students to to think about or prospective students for anybody really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking about well, I have to major in this to be this, but I'm not mm -hmm. really happy doing doing this particular major. Exactly. I always tell my students, you know, make sure that you listen to your own instinct because, and I always tell them, you know, if you don't question yourself, if, I know that you're coming in, you know, with your parents' ideas and your family's ideas and your friends' ideas and your own, you know, presupposed ideas of what you wanted to do and what you thought you were going to do. But don't ignore your instinct. If you're having a wonderful class, if you're having, you know, a, an excellent experience in a particular field, don't ignore those feelings you know, follow them. Good advice. Excellent advice. You know, I want to, I want to talk about your teaching and a bit in your work with students, but before we do so, let's um, talk a little bit about that, that opening uh, quotation from your piece, uh, Gringos Mexicanos that, that mm -hmm. I read. So how, I mean, you said earlier, I think that, that something about Mexico still was, or still is the center of your life. Mm -hmm. um, what, how I mean, how do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as, Mexican-American, a Mexican gringa, I mean, <laughs> all of the above. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, and, and part of the podcast project, right, I'm kind of throwing it out there that I'm a gringa mexicana. But, you know, it's really interesting uh, because I, ha I very much feel the need to introduce myself as, you know, I'm American, but I grew up in Mexico. Like I have to add that. And, and I do say, you know, I do call it in that story in in that story called Gringos Mexicanos, I do call it that, you know, I, 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 of course I'm privileged, right. That I can walk into an institution and I can, you know, quote unquote, play it, play it, you know, white American, um, you know, who's monolingual, monocultural. And I can do that, you know, or sure, I can, you know, brag about my Irish ancestry, even though I really don't, I couldn't tell you the first thing about it, right? But I mean, I, I could brag about that. Oh, you know, um, and that that is, you know, we have to call that for what it is. There is a privilege to that, you know, and, and in the story, I talk about, you know, going into uh, the the beauty, what it, what is it, the beauty shop or whatever, when you get your hair cut uh, and, uh 
for some reason, they love to talk about your personal life. And I just avoid that. I really dislike that. You know, so I just take it as a performance. Okay, who am I going to be today? You know, and usually my go to is just, you know, I'm Katie from Portland, you know, I moved to the Midwest, I'm a professor, or I teach, you know, Spanish in college. And that's just sort of my persona. Um, and, but that, that's never good enough because they always want to know more. Well, why are you, why are you doing Spanish and where'd you learn your Spanish? And it's just, oh goodness, you know? Um, but that's the part is that I can play that, but yet I don't think that if I'm trying to have a friendship with someone, if I'm teaching, if I'm truly going to be who I am 100%, then I need in order to perform, you know, my identity or just simply be fully, I need to, uh, embrace those. I need to perform those collectively. And the difficult thing about it is that, you know, American society, especially mainstream culture will not allow you to do that. You know, I, if I had a penny for every single time I was asked, well, if you had to choose, what do you feel more, you know, do you feel more American or do you feel more Mexican? Um, you know, and that, and it, 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 it takes someone coming at it from a monocultural, monolingual aspect to even form the question that way, because anybody who has lived a different experience will tell you that's an impossible question. You know, it's like, it's like your, your kids asking you, well, who do you love more? Do you love me or my brother more? Right. Um, or nieces and nephews, you know, or friends, your best friends saying, well, who do you like? Who's your best friend, me or you? It's like, no, I mean, uh, it's not about that, right? It's about friendship in general. It's about people in general. It's about a sense of being. Um, and so that that's something that I actually try to share with my students a lot, because uh, I do have a lot of students coming from underrepresented backgrounds. And it's about teaching them that you don't have to choose. You can be both, you know, right. or you multicultural and embrace it. Uh, it's not about choosing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm thinking as you're speaking a long time ago, getting into, oh, it might have been my first year of teaching, into into a friendly debate with a class about whether, um, you know, whether it was appropriate to think of themselves as Swedish American or Scandinavian American. And they, they wanted to just say American, we're American, you know, no matter mm-hmm. what our, what our backgrounds are. Yeah. Um, the, you know, what about in Mexico when you travel there, which you, you, you do often, I would imagine, um, how are you, how are you greeted or treated by people who so, don't know you? So, um, when I am in Guadalajara and the surrounding areas where I grew up, um, you know, of course, people do look at me. Uh, there are, um, you know, white, blue-eyed, green-eyed uh, Mexicans. I mean, I always say Mexicans and Latinos in general, you know, it's a tree of different roots. So Latinidad is a tree with different roots, right? I mean, you've got the Afro, you've got the indigenous, you've got the Asian. I mean, you have, especially nowadays, you can't, I mean, we know this, right? We can't, um, uh, look at someone's ethnicity and, and, or what they look like ethnically or racially. And we can't say, Oh, that, you know, this must be this, or, I mean, that's obvious. Right. Um, but people would, you know, comment and say, and say, you know, where are you from? Well, actually they wouldn't word it that way. They would say, you're not from here. Right. That, that was the literal translation, right? Usted no es de aquí, ¿verdad? O tú no eres de aquí, ¿verdad? Um, and I would, uh, I would always say, yes, I am, you know, and I would say I'm from Los Altos, Los Altos de Jalisco. And, you know, Los Altos de Jalisco is is a, a part of Jalisco up in the mountains that uh, actually housed a lot of refugees from the Second World War from Germany. Germany, Poland. And so um, uh, it's common for a lot of the people that are from that area to actually look, you know, white and blue eyed, white and green eyed, you know, and they call them güeros. Uh, and... Uh, so I always say, oh, I'm from there. And immediately, because they don't hear, you know, a gringa accent in my voice, they hear an accent similar to their own, they let it go. Because it's believable. Um, but the rest of the time, I'm always uh, cognizant of that, right? Uh, uh, but the interesting thing about um, the feeling of, of nationalism in Mexico and of national identity is that it's, it's all through language. And, and, you know, of course, La Malinche is this, this figure, right? The, the woman who stood by, right? Hernán Cortés's uh, uh, right hand, so to speak, um, who, whose uh, claim to fame was all of the, the many indigenous languages she was able to speak. Um, so, so it's all about language in Mexico in terms of, 
of making connections with people. So, so if you can speak like someone from Mexico, then the way you look is, is not going to be the first thing that's brought up. It might be the second or the third or the fourth. Um, it's always going to be language first. And, and this is something that I explore a lot in conversations uh, you know, with my own podcast, because I wanted to explore that, that that's ju not just a personal opinion, but that it's something that other, other friends of mine and colleagues who, are, who I would also label as gringos mexicanos, and we get into that a little bit, right? Like, what does that mean? And do you identify as that as well? Or, you know, this is just a made up term. Um, I would never identify myself first as a Mexicana, because again, I have to be cognizant of the fact that I, you know, was not born in Mexico and my family, I have no family members um, of whom I descend, right? Uh, that, that of whom I'm a descendant, right? That, that uh, are Mexican. I do, my brother's married to a Mexican woman. And of course my nieces and nephews are Mexican American. Um, but I myself, right? Uh, cannot claim that I am Mexican. I do feel Mexican, right? I feel Mexican American. And I always say that, you know, my friends in Mexico will say, Ay, tú eres bien Mexicana, you know, you're so Mexican. Oh my goodness. You know, and, and I'll say, well, I feel it. That's my response, right? I feel it because I do feel a sense of identity with Mexico, um, but I, I can't claim it. So I say gring, gringa Mexicana because I have gringa to claim my gringoness first, right? It's so interesting. I, I'm, I'm kind of laughing at myself because my memory was is when I was in Mexico, I had the, the opposite problem and experience you, you do, which is that I could pass in appearance for for Mexican, but once people started <laughs> speaking <laughs> rapid Spanish to me, I, I lost it. I think they used to call me, uh, I think they called me Goyo or something like that. Um, anyway, so mm -hmm. I would find myself in this situation where, you know, someone thought I was Mm -hmm. from Mexico somewhere and would just be yeah. speaking to me as though I were a native speaker. I had no idea what they were saying. I could make out some of it. Anyway, that is very interesting about the language. What about, let, let's talk a little bit and, and also about your, you know, how you feel that way. Let, if, if we can, a slight detour before we get to your teaching. Um, wh what were you thinking as you are thinking as you hear President Trump going on about Mexicans, excuse me, Mexicans and building the wall? I mean, I wonder what, what that's like given your oh, sort of dual... Identity. Wow. Well, I mean, it's just so offensive, right? I mean, it's just, it's beyond words uh, at this point. Um, it's so offensive because, you know, Mexico is right there, you know, and when we, when we talk about uh, the term greater Mexico, you know, coined by Américo Paredes, uh, looking at the fact that just imagine, I tell my students this, you know, just imagine that there was a time in history where Oregon and California, that's where the border was, right? That's where the border of Mexico and the United States was. Um, now, of course, you know, we, we can't envision that at all. We're thinking, oh, you know, California is, is the U.S. Well, right? Yes and no. I mean, we have to talk about, we have to acknowledge the fact that our Southwest is, is just rich with culture. Hispanic culture, Latino culture. Um, and unfortunately, you know, so many people from a mainstream uh, cultural and, and historical perspective don't acknowledge that it's so offensive. And, and, and I like to call it cultural amnesia, you know, that, that it's like every, every different, you know, cultural group came through the U.S. at a different, you know, point in history. Uh, you name it, right? The Irish, the Italian, Germans, etc., and and everybody was put un under a, a similar you know level of scrutiny and and intolerance and racism and xenophobia, and 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 to the point that you know with the Mexican people, they're right there. This is your neighbor, but of course it's also done with Canada, you know. So. It's just um, it's so it's appalling and and. Uh, really terrible when you think about what what could be the relationship between these neighboring countries um, and how anyone who's visited Mexico for longer than one week, you know, and for longer than just partying purposes. Right. And just going across you, the border more than know, just traveling into Tijuana or something. Can tell you how rich the culture is, how welcoming the people are, how much you can learn uh, from being there that, that honestly it's a pity, right? What's lost. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I have had uh, one person in particular in my life who was going on about, you know, there's no cuisine in Mexico. I mean, my God. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the culture, I just remember, you know, the first, well, the only time I've been to Mexico City, I guess, was 
well, several times when I was there as a student, just, you know, absolutely blown away by how cosmopolitan it was, the rich history, the culture, the art, the food. And I know the food, the, I like food, the food scene. And by the way, I want to interview your dad since he was in the restaurant business. <laughs> but uh, the food scene there is so, so incredible. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, um, uh, We'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yes. You have talked about in your in an interview you did for the student newspaper, the Weekly. You 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 said of your teaching, and I'm quoting you. Um, you were asked, "What are the, what three words best describe your teaching style?" You said, "Comedic, benevolent, and challenging." And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by those words. So um, I'll start with uh, comedic, and I think it's because uh, you know I'm the stand-up comic in my family. Um, you know, growing up, uh, things were kind of rough. I only have one sibling and our relationship, you know, has been, uh, has had lots of up and downs, but whenever there's drama in the relationship or in the family, you know, I'm the one known to break the tension. And, you know, to this day, I just, I love storytelling and I love, uh, having the attention of listeners and, and, uh, you know, trying to be as personable as I can with the objective of connecting with someone, connecting, you know, with a story. And I, I mean, if there's one word I could use to describe my passion in life is stories. It, it's about, you know, using stories to connect with people, whether it's a story through dance, whether it's a story, you know, through creative writing or through teaching. Uh, you know, even when I do my teaching, I always use stories and anecdotes and uh, as a way to connect to people and to, and to help with learning. So um, I also think that comedy is something central to Mexican culture. Um, you know, the Latino Hispanic cultural in general, but, but I think, uh, it's just very central to, to, uh, Mexican-ness. It's, it's cracking a joke here and there. And, you know, I always tell my students the very first day of class, I say to them, you know, um, I need you to kind of roll with me, right. That, that I might crack a joke. I might say something. I'm never going to do it at the expense of anyone. I mean, I, I do have standards and I'm never going to humiliate someone. It's about, making it light and making it move forward, make having a connection, sparking a connection. And um, I often find that being being light and fun and airy about things um, helps helps me to do that. But uh, I think one of the reasons why I enjoy teaching so much is because um, because, you know, I enjoy the limelight, right? I, I enjoy performing, whether it's through yes. dancing or storytelling um, or in this case, you know, like my podcast writing from a, a voice that's a very much a stand-up, you know, voice. Um, at the same time, though, I will say related to teaching, though, you know, though that's the case, my teaching is very much student-centered. So I like to, you know, throw out a comment, you know, much like, uh, was it Mike Myers in his SNL sketch, you know, Linda, who would say, you know, I'm going to give you a topic, right? And throw out a big term, right? You know, 19th century, whatever. And she'd say, discuss, you know, so I like to give it a little bit of like a stand up moment where, okay, we're talking, here's the case, here's the scenario, let's go for it. So that it's student centered in the sense that they're working with it, they're, you know, being challenged, they're being motivated to put it together on their own and kind of put the onus on them. Um, but now I'll lead in into benevolence and challenging that I like to push my students out of their comfort zone but I also provide a net. So if they fall, they're, they're, you know, right, they're caught. I don't like teaching with humiliating people. I don't like, you know, making jokes at the expense of others. I, 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 you know, everyone in their life, I think, has had good teachers and bad teachers. And, you know, I very clearly know what I don't want to do and where the limit is. And um, for that reason, I, I, you know, it's about being kind. It's about being a mentor. It's about inspiring people. Why? Because that's how you pass it forward. One day they will be mentors. One day they will be teachers. They will share this with their family members. And hopefully, you know, that'll be a cycle that'll move, you know, the continuum forward. I think those are three ingredients of, of teaching excellence, which you certainly have, the comedic, the benevolent, and, and the challenging. And I couldn't agree more about the 
about teaching being performative. At least I think the best teaching. Um, I've become much more aware of that in my own case. I sometimes think maybe I should have gone into the theater. I've even had students say, you know, in evaluations, oh, you'd be, you'd be good on stage or whatever. Well, it is a stage, right? Like we, are on, we are on stage. I always say we write the script, we produce it, we do the lighting, we do the sound, we, exactly. we do it all. Um, let's talk about, I mean, one, one key part of your teaching, which I've, uh, mentioned in the intro and certainly what I, what I, what I think of, I know a lot of, uh, Gustavus faculty think of and students when we think of you as a professor at Gustavus is the, is the emphasis you've placed on what is sometimes called service learning, or I think better community-based, uh, learning. Talk a little bit about what, some of what that is involved, uh, uh, in your teaching. So, um, I was hired at Gustavus uh, to um, initiate, uh, spearhead, and develop a program that would work with uh, modern language or within the modern languages, uh, literatures and cultures department, um, you know, for multiple languages, primarily Spanish in this case, uh, the area that I teach. And, you know, I knew coming into the job, this was what I was being interviewed for. This was what I was being hired to do, uh, in addition to teaching, of course. And, um, you know, my first year, I really just wanted to scope the area. I wanted to um, drench myself in, you know, what does it mean to be here in St. Peter? What What is Minnesotan culture, right? It, it, I was just moving from Iowa. So, uh, you know, one would think, oh, there's not so much difference. But in fact, there is a lot of difference. Right. Um, it's a different, a different culture, different, different ideology. Um, we have different students here. And so I wanted to really drench myself in that, in the sense of community in town, what opportunities were there. Now, I did come uh, to Gustavus, you know, with an idea, like I said, you know, coming from a Je Jesuit background of, of service and working, you know, with the people working in the community. So I came with that idea. Um, I had had some experience at the U of I with um, community based learning in the classroom, creating curriculums for that that setting. Uh, so I knew, uh, I knew the, I think the insight I had more than anything is, is instinct. Uh, I love conversation. I love talking to people. I love meeting new people. I love listening, uh, to people's stories. So that's what I did that first year. And, um, the first year I was lucky to, you know, have different mentors, um, here on campus and in the community who, led me to different opportunities um, in terms of scholarship, in terms of grants and funding. And, you know, one thing led to another and we developed the Language Buddies program, which is, you know, focused on transcultural competence, meaning in order for something to work and to work and, and work, not just to work for working, working sake, right? But in order for it to be lifelong learning, for it to be meaningful, for it to have an impact, um, otherwise, why do it? Right. And that's community engagement. Right. Um, and so it has to be reciprocal. So what are the needs of the community? So let's talk to the community. Let's talk to different organizations. Let's sit in meetings and just see, OK, what what's going on here? Um, hear those. And then how could I volunteer and volunteer my students uh, in order to maybe meet those needs? And at the same time, have my students learn. So we were looking ultimately for a win-win situation and for things to be reciprocal, you know, and, and oftentimes my students would come in, you know, and they would say, oh, uh, I'm going to help, quote unquote, a student, a third grader. I'm going to help a third grader learn English, a third grader from Guatemala learn English, you know, and I was all about, let's reverse that question, right? So, so what are, what is the third grader going to teach you? in addition to this class, right? And it really very rapidly changed the, the framework, the way that they looked at things. And um, semester after semester, we realized that, wow, actually there is a lot of impact here on the student, on the third grade, the third grade, grader who got to sit down with a native English speaker, you know, to work on their English assignment or their reading. Um, but, but equally, if not more so, there was a tremendous advantage here for this Gustavus student who was exposed, you know, to working with a child that speaks another language. So their linguistic, you know, skills are right up there. But on an intercultural level, you know, what are they learning? They're learning adaptability, flexibility, um, yeah, you know, how to work uh, in different settings with different people. And what is the empathy, right? What is their the student's living situation? Um, 
openness, cultural openness, right? Are they refugees? Are they undocumented peoples, et cetera? You know, and what does that mean? And so it would really break down barriers for them. So we, we started very initially with um, the Language Buddies program. We would pair students in groups of two and we would send them to Latino, volunteering Latino families to their homes directly. And in the home, you know, there there might be two, three kids that needed help with homework. Sometimes the parents needed help inter- interpreting or translating um, certain documents, letters they got in the mail. Um, sometimes they would need help going to the grocery store. You know, it was kind of like they were little personal assistants or something. Every every um, situation was very different. And later we partnered with Martin Lang over at um, Com Studies and videos were produced by his students uh, using our Language Buddies program um, and working together in order to come up with framing questions. Uh, we put together Language Buddies videos that illustrate uh, five stories of how very differently each of these interactions t- took place. So this, this we did for about three years embedded in the curriculum 100%. So, you know, we're teaching Latin American culture and we're learning, you know, from the beginning, right? 1492, but we're also talking about, all right, what are you doing today with this family from Guatemala? Oh, well, actually they're Mayan. So Spanish is their second language. Oh, how interesting. How could, how does that relate to this situation? You know, so from the beginning, it was a textbook or not really textbook because I don't use a textbook, but you know what I mean? Um, it was academic, but it was also hands-on learning, uh, project-based service learning, community engagement, very much complementing and intentional. But uh, after about three to four years of doing that, it was so high stakes in terms of uh, the work that was behind it, even though we had student coordinators um, helping us. It was very, very much a lot of work. Uh, So we decided to then, how can we streamline this? How can we... um, continue this work, continue uh, the impacts that that are working, as I said before, you know, both ways, but mainstream it and uh, ensure that, that we can work on this more. So we, we talked to the school principals um, and the superintendent of the St. Peter Public Schools here, and we worked together. And now we partner with them and we work through the schools. So teachers tell us which students specifically um, need the, the additional support and then our students are paired now one-on-one. Sometimes this also varies. You know, the teacher might say, I actually, I want one student or two or three to come in during these periods and to work with everyone or to work with students at this table. Uh, Some students, some teachers actually um, have had very, you know, uh, interesting, innovative ideas of, you know, they come in and they sit right next to students who are recently arrived from El Salvador or Honduras, Nicaragua and just sit next to them and they act as interpreters. So if the second grader has something to say, you know, the language buddy will raise their hand and say, you know, this is the, this student's contribution, which he told me in Spanish and I'm sharing with you in, in English. Um, and this is wonderful because it enables that student to speak Spanish and for the other kids in the class to benefit from that, that language. And have a I think it's just great. I think it's fantastic. And I, the, the thing that turned me off about service learning, at least as it was being presented years ago, um, was that, you know, this idea that we sort of show up, we and our students, and we're here to help you. And the one experience I had in the Twin Cities with that was that, you know, well, we don't need your help, right? Exactly. We, I mean, we don't have the time or the money to train mm-hmm. you to help us. So I think that that emphasis on the reciprocity, um, what the Gustava student learns from the, the, uh, the, student that she or he is 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 partnering with or buddying with i just think mm-hmm. is so so important exactly. we're almost out of time but i do want to talk about your podcast at least briefly because you've mentioned it a couple of times just tell us a little bit about what that involves and how people can uh, can access it if they can Yes, thank you. Um, the podcast is called uh, Gringos Mexicanos, and you can find that find that at gringosmexicanos.org. Um, you know, it's it's a larger project in the sense that, you know, it began just myself writing my stories. And, you know, they say that writers have uh, creative writers, right? They always are answering the same question. And I've even done this in my research. So maybe it's writing in general. Um, you know, what's what's that question that I just can't put my finger on or that just really motivates me that I want to continue exploring in different settings, in different geographies, um, different cultures, et cetera. 
And, um, you know, for me, it has to do with this sense of nostalgia, this sense of identity, this sense of, you know, where am I from? And I realize that's a very political question, but, you know, um, you know, am I from Portland? Well, I really don't even, you know, if you ask me a specific question about Portland, I don't know that I could answer it because I really didn't grow up there as an adult. You know, am I from Mexico? Well, I only lived there for about 18, you know, 20 years. So am I from there? If you ask me a really specific question, you know, I've studied it, but, you know, am I from there? Maybe not now. Am I from Iowa? Well, I lived there for 10 years. Am I from here? I lived here for 10 years. You know, so where am I from? And I think it's just that search, right? It's identity negotiation, right? Um, process. And I started writing and, um, you know, seeking publishers for the creative nonfiction stories. And I realized after publication that, gosh, these stories, they're really meant to be read out loud. And, uh, you know, my husband actually said, well, you know, why don't you, you create a podcast? I mean, if, if that's what the purpose is, then you should do that. And I thought, you know, um, that's what I need to do because I, I had felt it within, but yet I hadn't really, uh, made that decision. And I, I applied for a grant and started putting things together. And as soon as I started doing it, I just wanted to do more and more. And, uh, the first part of it is of course, you know, my own reciting of the stories that have been published through Portal. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very honored that that, that was the case because Paul Allison um, ha has edited numerous works in the field of Latino studies and edited the works of Susana Chavez-Silverman, uh, her famous text, Killer Cronicas, written in Spanglish as well, uh, you know, was a huge influence for me in grad school. So to be published by him, was a big deal for me in the sense that, you know, maybe you need to continue doing this, right? If this is being validated, this is somewhere you need to continue exploring. So, um, I have, I had originally had five stories. I'm about to upload a sixth one that will be forthcoming in October, also published by Portal. And, um, the first part of it is, like I say, the reading of those stories. The part that I'm working on now is interviewing colleagues, uh, from within the field and from other fields uh, of academia, people who work in the community, friends on these issues of multiculturalism, bilingualism, identity, uh, religion, um, religious practices. You know, what does it mean to be a gringo mexicano or what does it mean to be, you know, Lat Latinx today? It all sounds great, and of course, it couldn't be more timely given what we're dealing with at the uh, at the present uh, moment. And I urge listeners to to tune in, and also listeners can hear. I can hear um, uh, just the, the the range of creativity and interests on your part um, comes comes through, and uh, your your as you said, really at the start, your your passion for learning, which I think is essential to being a successful teacher as you are. So thanks so much. Uh, I urge listeners, uh, students thinking of attending Gustavus to seek out Professor Dwyer and uh, uh, learn a great deal. Uh, so thank you so much, Angelique. It's been fun. And we'll see you back on campus at some thank point. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. This has been wonderful. Take it's care. It's been great. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.